This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Top of the morning to you. Another day uh, where we'll be giving you the tools you need to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. You know, we're all born. None of us have a handbook. So on this show, we try to bring you the tools you need to make it through and make sense of this crazy thing we call life. Good uh, Tuesday morning to you. Top of the morning to you. Honestly, I hope uh, you're doing okay in the stock market. It's been quite uh, the turbulent day. In fact, uh, yesterday, one of the most volatile days in the stock market. Up and down and up and down. Anyway, today, hoping it will be much better. And today, just so you know, if you're keeping score, Kiss and Makeup Day. August 25th is Kiss and Makeup Day, which uh, we all we need more of. Can't we all just get along? Man, Donald Trump went all over Megyn Kelly in the Twitter sphere. Megyn Kelly, she's that uh, journalist on Fox News that came back uh, from, you know, she went on vacation, came back, and then Donald Trump just lit her up. Can't he just leave her alone? What is the deal? You know, the Donald Trump had all of these crazy retweets. Uh, like, basically, once again, re-characterized her. Re- in a previous retweet, he, remember he called her a bimbo, and once again he uh, retweeted something that someone else said, the bimbo is back in town. I hope not for long. Holy cow, can we not kiss and make up wow. on that? You don't say that. You don't say that. You don't say that. Even if you don't, you don't retweet it. Right. You're a candidate for the presidency. Come on, come on. Hey, um, today we got a great show for you. Andrew, Doctor Andrew Zimbalist will be joining us. He is an expert in the economics behind the Olympics, behind FIFA, behind all of these stadiums that are you know everyone's fighting for. Uh, you know, uh, Los Angeles is in. Um, a major fight to try to get some football teams to come back to L.A., and they're luring them in with stadiums. Everybody needs a stadium, apparently. Well, uh, Andrew Zimbalist is going to be joining us in just a few minutes. He is um, going to talk to us about the true economics of these stadiums and, more importantly, also of FIFA, what's going on with FIFA when they're trying to Bring the um, the soccer, the national, what are they called? The World's Cup to a country. Does that actually produce revenue? Is that a is that a positive thing for a country? We'll get into the actual uh, economics behind it, and honestly, it'll blow your mind. It may even make you never want to to bring the Olympics to your state. Um, a, a crazy thing too. I don't know if you're seeing this, but where the they want there there's a call out now for billionaires. So if you're a billionaire and you want to go to space, they need you because they need your money. <laughs> and I'm afraid that colonizing you know Mars is going to be much like bringing the Olympics to your your local uh, your local community. They need billionaires, and I've got a suggestion. I have a billionaire that I'm kind of tired of hearing from. That I think if we would send this one billionaire up there, he could have his own planet. I'm not going to name names, but he's running for office. It rhymes with dump. And it rhymes with pump and hump and dump. Hmm. (laughs) But uh, so if you are a billionaire and you are in need of uh, you, you want an adventure, 
and you, you know, you have some free time, we'll send you to Mars. We'll let you colonize it. Wouldn't that be great? Anyway, we'll be getting to that uh, a little bit later as well. More stories, more ideas. But first, let's get to the headlines with our good friend Kathy Aiken. Good morning, everyone. Most of the Asian markets bounced back this morning for, with big exceptions being China and Japan. Yesterday, global markets plummeted due to China's plunging stocks. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down nearly 600 points at the end of trading after falling 1,000 points at the opening. Here's financial expert Melody Hobson. Suddenly, U.S. stocks have corrected. They're down 10% from their highs, and they're at valuations that are much more attractive. We've been in a six-year bull run, and bull markets don't go on forever. It may be an opportunity for investors to step in, and we may see some bargain hunters do just that. Investors were hungry to buy this morning as the Dow appeared ready to jump 400 points or more at the opening bell. Wildfires in central Washington state are now the largest in state history. Five wildfires covering over 256,000 acres grew more than 26 square miles on Sunday, and the fires are only 10 percent contained. More than 1,200 firefighters are battling the flames that are threatening 5,000 homes. President Obama has reportedly given Vice President Joe Biden his blessing to run for president. Press Secretary Press Secretary Josh Earnest said at a White House briefing that Mr. Obama believes putting Biden on the ticket in 2008 was the smartest decision he's made in politics. Though he added Obama wasn't endorsing Biden, he said he wouldn't rule out the possibility of Obama making an endorsement for someone down the road. Aides expect Biden to make a decision by the end of September. IndyCar driver Justin Wilson has died from a head injury he sustained in a race over the weekend. Here's former Indy driver Eddie Cheever. Justin was a man that was totally in love with the sport that he chose as his, as his life's ambition. That he was probably the favorite driver of all the drivers in the paddock. He leaves behind a very big legacy as to how a race car driver should act on and off the racetrack. The 37-year-old father of two was struck by a large piece of debris from another car that hit into the wall. Officials believed he was knocked unconscious, which forced him to hit an interior wall. Police in more than 20 North American cities are testing the latest in less lethal alternatives to bullets. The idea is to make blunt impact projectiles that cause the suspect excruciating pain but stop short of killing them. The effort has taken on a new urgency in the past year after high-profile police shootings. And this from the Captain Obvious file, Matt. Staffers in an eastern Washington state jail foiled an escape attempt by spotting a long trail of knotted bed sheets hanging from the window (laughs) of a cell. The sheets nearly reached the ground. The window of the cell, get this, about four feet tall, but less than five inches wide. Wow. I mean, who could, can you even even get get through that? I don't think you can. After finding the dangling sheets, officials moved James Henriksen to another part of the jail. (laughs) He suspected in a murder for hire plot. Officials were a bit surprised since the hanging sheet ploy is one of the oldest tricks in the book. They say next to putting a file Oh, in a in a cake. Yeah. Uh, you know, my son could get his head through the railings on your banister. Uh-huh. You know the banister. Uh-huh. Sure. So if he could get hit, that's five inches or less. Yeah. So then uh, I'm sure a criminal could get out five inches. You think? Oh, An sure. adult head could get. If you there? grease your ears, <laughs> could he get his head out though? It's one thing to get in, but could he get out also? No, my son can only get his head stuck. <laughs> yeah. He could never Coming get back it unstuck. Is a harder. In fact, I remember like sitting there thinking, how did you get your head in there? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> and Bill Cosby always said, well, were you with your head the entire time? Like, Come on. It's, uh, it's an interesting um, – this go back to the story about Biden. 
Yeah. Apparently, Jill Biden's not sold on the whole thing. Really? So, well, how he, old is Joe? He's, isn't he? I think he's ninety-eight. Is he in his seventies? Yeah, he's he's almost. I think he's he'll be seventy. I think eight when he's president. Wow. 77, yeah, 78. That's, that's kind of a little too old, I believe. But, the, I mean, that's a big deal for the president to say something. Yeah. That's like, you know, Hillary's got to be shaken a little bit. Yeah. Like the and president's going to. golfing with Bill. So, you know, know, what do you, what do, you <laughs> it's do? so scary. But if you, what do you do when yeah. your wife's not in on it? So what, what if Jill's like, no, we're not doing that. I'm not doing this again. Joe, no. Let's no. just, we're just going to drop you but off you at know, the home. But you know, to go, to wait till the end of September. I don't know if he's waiting for Hillary Clinton's email thing to kind of clear either good or bad. Yeah, he probably needs a little more data. That's kind of, uh, that's kind of getting into the ballgame yeah. late. And they're telling him if he does, if he's not in by October, he's not going to get in. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Yeah. It's too bad they can't make it just six months. It's way too long. The whole process <sighs> is way too You know too what? Long. Honestly. But then who would we make fun of? That's true. We have a lot of, a lot of good news. And the sad thing is, is we shouldn't make fun of these people because <laughs> they're trying. But honestly, they make it so easy. So easy. So much good material. So much good material. Well, good job. Well done again, Kathy, as always. Hey, we've got a great uh, topic coming up for you about the Olympics and FIFA, right? Soccer World Cup and all these stadiums we're talking about. Are they the best money spent? Why are all of these states and countries so actively chasing the opportunity to host the Olympics, especially when you find out economically they're going to cost you. They're going to cost you a lot. We'll be talking with really, truly the, one of the leading experts in the world on the economics behind all of these uh, sporting, I guess, uh, opportunities. Stick with us, folks. Dr. Andrew Zimbalist will be joining us, joining us in just a minute. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Now, when you hear that song, you know, you think of your country fighting for its honor. Well, in the end, have you ever been involved in a city that hosted the Olympics? Man, you'd think you had just, you know, touched the queen's crown. It was the greatest thing in the world. Except what we're finding out now more and more um, about whether it's uh, the FIFA World Cup, whether it's the Olympics, A, there's always scandal, it seems like, somewhere you know looming around those events. But also, it may not be as financially beneficial and advantageous for the host cities as one might think. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Andrew Zimbalist. He is um, the author of the book Circus Maximus, The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. And he really is a, a, a world expert and, um, and, and guide, I think, to helping us see better what's going on behind the scenes of some of the, the, the world's largest sporting events. Dr. Andrew Zimbalis, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. Great to have you here. Honored to have you here again. We come from Utah, where Salt Lake City put uh, that the uh, Salt Lake scandal of the Olympics and kind of, I guess, shined a huge big light on the corruption behind trying to get these games. Talk to us about 
these big events. What what really a why is everyone drawn to them? Why do all of these these countries want to host these events? And B, what's the reality financially of what's happening? So I, I think what you find, Matt, is is that as a general rule, the construction industry takes the lead in in promoting the idea of hosting the Olympics or the World Cup. And and the reason simply is that there's a tremendous amount of construction that a city has to do in order to host the Olympics or the World Cup. Let's just concentrate on the Olympics, since that's what Salt Lake City was involved with. Yeah. Um, and and you, 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 of course, had the Winter Olympics. The Winter Olympics have about 14 venues that, that have to be built. The Summer Olympics have about 35 venues mm. that have to be built. Um, the, one of the, the largest expenses in, in both cases is the Athletes' Village. The Athletes' Village today costs somewhere between 2 and $3 billion to build. In the case of the Summer Olympics, you're talking about building – Basically, it's a whole village. <clears throat> you need 17,000 beds for the athletes and the trainers and their coaches, 17,000 beds. Mm. You, need, you need training facilities. Uh, so if, if, it's, if it's the Winter Olympics, obviously you're going to need different facilities than for the Summer Olympics. But, you, 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 you know, you, you need workout rooms. You need machinery. You, you need tracks. Uh, you, you need cafeterias. You need medical facilities. So you're building a, a community. And it's a very expensive thing to do. Uh, you also have to build a media center and a broadcast center because the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, cares uh, tremendously about the, the image, the optics right. that, that are created. And, and those, those images and those optics are created by the press, whether it's the television press or the, uh, the written press or the media or whatever it is. You have to treat those people well and you have to give them uh, good accommodations and, and good good telecommunications and so on. And those those facilities for the broadcast and media center, they, they seem to cost about a half a billion dollars oh, yeah. these days. And and then, of course, we haven't even talked about all the sporting venues that you right. have to build. And you have to build the, the, the transportation network to transport not only the Olympians, but also the IOC executives and the sponsors, and then, of course, all the fans uh, that, are, that are coming to the games. And, and so there's a tremendous amount of transportation expense. Uh, sometimes it's for roadways, sometimes it's for parking or bridges, sometimes it's for mass transit. Uh, but that, that too, can, can run into the billions of dollars these days. Then there's a security expense, which uh, thankfully in Salt Lake City, or for, thankfully for Salt Lake City, was picked up by the right. federal government. Right after 9-11, right? After, right after 9-11. Uh, but that can run in London. It was 1.4 billion dollars. Uh, the the estimate for Beijing in in 2008 was uh, upwards of of 1.8 billion dollars. Uh, that number seems to be growing over time. So it turns out that you know there, there's a lot of there has been historically a tremendous escalation in the expectations of the IOC and in the presentation of something that's that's grandiose and and grand and elaborate. Um, and and very very expensive, so that the costs going going back from 2002 and then going up to what we see today, the, the costs have have gone up many fold. Yeah. Um, so that's on the one side. You know, London spent London spent over 18 billion dollars hosting the games. Their initial bid, what they said that they were going to spend, was five billion, and it was supposed to be privately funded. It turned out to be 85 percent publicly funded. Hmm. 
Uh, and that money so, goes to the contractors, right? The builders. Well, mo- most of the money ends up in the hands of, of contractors. Some, of course, goes to the companies that are affiliated with the contractors. Or some goes to architectural firms. <clears throat> some will go to investment bankers who float the loans, the bonds to finance everything, and the lawyers who work for the investment bankers. So it spreads out a little bit in the local economy, but primarily at, at the top of the hierarchy are these construction firms that mm. get massive, massive contracts. And, and when, when you put a firm deadline, this is very different than you know bu- building, um, uh, building a normal commercial building or building a re- retail mall or building residential building. Because when you, when you build those things, you see, you see you have a guideline. You say, right. oh, we want, to, we want to finish in 18 months. But if you finish in 20 or 22 months, nobody's going to scream and kick. You can't finish four months late <laughs> if, if you're hosting the Olympics. Yeah, right. So when you have a firm deadline like that, and you're on the international stage, um, you have to meet the deadline. And so what the construction companies do is they say, look, if you really need me to do this, uh, and this time I have to drop the other work I'm doing, instead of charging you you know, $100 million, I'm going to charge you $200 million for this project. And prices, prices go higher and higher. And I guess they're saying they're yeah. going to recoup it. I mean, they're, they're, they are always saying, yeah, but this will bring so much revenue into the state. This will bring tourism will go up. And in reality, you're showing that none of that really takes place. Right. That's right. That's that's all of the the statistical studies that have been done, scholarly statistical studies, not not ones that are paid for by the <laughs> by, by the, the promoters. Right. Um, but to the people who are independent, who don't have an axe to grind, have have found that you can't depend on on any increases. Um, it, it, there have been some Olympic Games when then, when there was a, a modest increase in tourism, but there have also been games like in London. Uh, and in Beijing, when there are decreases in tourism. In fact, the number of skiers, the data that I have says the number of skiers who were in Utah in 2001 was higher than it was in 2002. Yeah, I believe that. It was also higher in in 2003 than it was in 2002. What happens is that normal tourists, or in the case of Utah, normal normal skiers, say, hey, this year I'm going to go skiing in Colorado. I don't want to deal with all the crowds. Yeah, they, and, yeah, and the, high, and, and the high expenses, high prices. Well, and this, this, so there's this illusion that there's a financial benefit. Then, because it's related to sports, it's almost like there's an illusion that everyone will get healthier. Everyone's going to be, uh, you know, like when the Summer Olympics are coming to Boston or wherever, that everyone's going to be healthier. <laughs> right. So that's th- this is one of the other claims that, in addition to the the standard claim that this is going to be the, the cat's meow for the local economy, that uh, what it's going to do is create a culture of exercise, a culture of fitness and health. <laughs> and in fact, there's just no evidence that that yeah. happens. Uh, the the British Parliament did a study just before London hosted and, and found that they went back to all the old games and they said, we don't find it anywhere. And then, of course, we now have data from London because that was, that was three years ago that it was hosted. And the, the number of people who are engaging in regular exercise in both London and in England has gone down since, mm. since 2012. You in your book, I know you you talk about uh, another pitch that they make to kind of get these the the monies flowing is to say, but this will create stability and equalization within these communities. You'll take the poor, you'll give them more opportunities, jobs will be had, they'll live better, and you're saying that's not even fact. No, it's, it, 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 on, on the contrary. I mean, for, first of all, if you do all this construction uh, for the seven years prior to the games. There'll probably be some increase in construction employment for those seven years. But notice that you're taking on a tremendous amount of debt 
in order to do all this, which has to be paid back right. in the years after the Olympic Games. And so if, if the government has to pay back the debt, they don't have money to, to, to build roads and to build schools, and so that lowers construction employment afterwards. The other thing is that when you have s such a, a large volume of construction concentrated in the few years before the Games, that uh, invariably what happens is the construction companies have to import labor. Uh, sometimes they do it from cities that are 40 miles away. Sometimes they do it from other provinces. Sometimes they do it from other countries. Yeah. Uh, and so it doesn't, it doesn't help the local labor force as much as, as, as you might think. The other thing that tends to be a pattern is that in order to make space for all of the venues that you need for the Olympics is you have to clear away some, some land. And what tends to get cleared away are pockets of, of low-income housing. Uh, if, if you look at the, the games that are upcoming in Rio, uh, this, this is probably the most extreme example. But, of course, around, around Rio, they have uh, the, these poor communities yeah. that, are, that are called favelas. And they've, they've just cleared away just, dozens of favelas and, and pushed people, tens of thousands of people, out of their communities and, and sent them, in, in the case of Rio, which is on, on, the, on the Atlantic, they sent them from the east side of the city where the favelas are to yeah. uh, an hour or two away on the west side of the city. And so they're taken away from their communities. The kids are taken out of their schools. The, the men and the women can't, can't get to their employment uh, in a reasonable amount of time, and they lose their jobs. Uh, so you, you often get that kind of uh, a phenomenon, and, and to argue that – and by the way, the same thing happened in Atlanta. There were two low-income low communities, mostly of minorities, Hispanics and African-Americans, uh, two-income communities that were leveled in Atlanta in order to make room for the, the dormitories. Uh, for for the for the uh, Olympic for the athletes uh. village, and also to make room for the the stadium, which is now be, it became the stadium of the, the Braves, the Atlanta Braves, but now it's being torn down because uh, the Braves are going to move out to a suburb. So you, you don't you don't generally get the phenomenon of equalization and lifting people out of poverty. If anything, the opposite tends to happen, which is to say that even if the overall there's you know the the overall economic effect is is neutral for the whole for the whole local economy, uh, that the 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 people on top tend to do better and the people on the bottom tend to do worse. Mm. Uh, interesting insight. We're, we're going to take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Andrew Zimbalist, who's a world expert and author um, on the subject of of sports and the money we need in order to attract, for example, the Olympics or the FIFA World Cup. Is this money well spent? Is this is this something that we just need to pay attention to? And man, there's got to be better solutions than building completely new stadiums just to host one event? Come on. We'll come back uh, more with Dr. Andrew Zimbalist and uh, on his book, Circus Maximus, The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, whether you're a sports fan or not, you know, countries around the globe are lining up to host the coveted uh, Olympic Games and also the World Cup Games. You know that China spent $40 billion to host the 2008 Summer Olympic Games in Beijing. Russia spent $50 billion for the 2014 Sochi Games. 
Uh, and interestingly, according to our, our expert that's on the line with us, Dr. Andrew Zimbalist, he, he tells us that um, of all of the Olympics held, um, I, I guess the Sochi Olympics winter games were probably the least successful. Is that right, Dr. Andrew Zimbalist? I think that that's right. And, and Matt, I think it's important also to clarify that when, when the estimate comes out that, that $51 billion was spent by Putin or by Russia on, on the Sochi Olympics, that we have to take that estimate with a grain of salt because, of course, <laughs> Mr. Putin tells us what he wants to tell us true, and huh? tell us what he doesn't want to tell us. Yeah. There's actually a, a very well-respected consulting firm in Moscow that, that estimated that the games cost $70 billion. Oh, wow. Uh, so, you know, but but you're right. I mean, $50 billion <laughs> in and of itself is eye-popping, right? Because, yeah. you know, that, but $70 billion. When you think about how much, how much money was generated from selling tickets and from the share, right. the share of international television money that – that Russia got from hosting the games, it yeah, well, was probably on the order of three and a half to four billion dollars. So on one side of the ledger, you've got a cost of fifty billion dollars plus, maybe seventy billion, who knows? And on the on the good side of the ledger, you've got three or four billion dollars. That's not a very good financial balance. No. And they're importing snow. And on the <laughs> ski resort mountain slope, it's sixty-five degrees. That's right. It's exactly crazy. And 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 it's it's although the situation will be a little bit different, it's not going to be a lot better in in Beijing. In 2022, Beijing was just awarded the Olympics, the Winter Olympics for 2022. They become the first city to host both the Winter and the Summer Olympics. But Beijing, of course, doesn't have any mountains. Right. So people are going to have to travel 120 miles to the north, close <laughs> close to uh, Inner Mongolia, to find a mountain uh, in order in order to find some some slopes and some mountains. But the, those mountains, although it's it's cold enough up there, unlike Sochi. Um, they don't get any snow because this this is actually right next to the Gobi Desert, and it's just very very dry there. <laughs> oh and, and my heavens! China and Beijing are are in a desperate water shortage. They have to, they they spent billions of dollars to create a system where you bring water from the south of China up to Beijing just to keep people alive in Beijing. Right. And now they're going to be putting all this water into making artificial snow. Well, and Rio, the the swimmers and the the. The cruisemen and the oarsmen on their oh, it's just, it's just, just they just can't even go in the Rio water. Um, well, when they do, they're getting sick. They're doing yeah, test runs. Exactly. And are coming out, they're going straight to the hospital. See, so this this is why I think the name of your book, Circus Maximus, is so fitting, right? I mean, so explain where the name Circus Maximus came from. <laughs> well, Cir- Circus Maximus, of, of course, refers to the large amphitheater. Uh, in in the ancient days, where they, they held they held sporting events and and, and other events in Rome, uh, but uh, you know what does it mean today? Today, this, this is a circus, right? That's right. This is the biggest circus. circus, and and as Maximus means that it's a uh, maximum, mm-hmm. it's the maximum circus. So yeah, I think it's I think it's 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 an appropriate name. Um, it's it's always fun to write a book and, and have have such a good name for it. Oh, it's like you couldn't have hit it better. That was awesome. <laughs> um, I I know you've got another uh, thing you've got to get to right away, but really we we then see in L A that there's a huge you know fight and game over moving you know football teams to, if they don't get a stadium and. But overall, whether it's the Olympics or whether it's FIFA Soccer World Cup or it's just the local stadium in your community, having a stadium doesn't necessarily bode well for the community. Is that what your research shows? Uh, yeah, a stadium by itself or an arena by itself does not 
uh, it doesn't help economically. I mean, it, it, it it's up to the local people to decide whether it helps them socially and culturally or not. Yeah. I think in, in many cases it does. It does. That it's has some benefit. The, it's fun to have the Utah Jazz around yeah. because you, know, you have somebody to root for. And right. you, ha- you have something that people in the community all relate to, not all, but maybe, you know, 60, many, 70% yeah. follow. You talk about it, the water cooler. It creates a sense of community. It's some identifying cohesive factor in your community. So, sure, on, on a social and cultural level, maybe you want to invest in that. But don't invest in it because you think it's going to create jobs or, or, or raise your, your income. Uh, there's no evidence for that. Now, sometimes, frankly... Uh, if, 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 and this is not the typical case, but it happens sometimes, the owner of the team actually pays for the facility. Sure. Or sometimes the owner of the team will commit to investing in ancillary property. So around the arena, they'll, they'll, they'll build a hotel and they'll build a commercial center. Or they'll build residential things. So sometimes the whole package, uh, not just the sports facility itself, but the entire project can have a, a positive effect. And that's why it's very important to, to look at um, the, the details. The devil's always in the details. Look at the details of the, the financing package and the details of the lease package and the details of the, the entirety of the investment package. And if, if you negotiate it the right way, you can make it work out for you. But don't, don't believe that just because you're building an arena or you're building a football stadium or whatever it is, it's going to make your economy grow. Think about a football stadium. If it's a college football stadium, they play six games a year there. Yeah. Last time I checked, there are 365 days right. a year. Or if it's a professional football stadium, they play 10 games a year there. And maybe you have a Bruce Springsteen concert. Maybe you have an, an evangelist. And so it's, instead of 10 days, you have 15 right. days. Maybe Donald Trump will come rent it out. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> but, in, I mean, I guess that's the point is it's 20 events a year. And right. meanwhile, the, especially if the city has to carry the burden, right? And Yeah, I mean, so in a football stadium, if you're talking about an NFL stadium like they're they're doing in L.A. now, you're talking not only about eight acres for the stadium footprint itself, but then you need another 20 or 30 acres for parking and tailgating. Uh, and, yeah. you're, and you're using the facility, whether, you know, 10, 15, 20 days a year out of 365. The, the other 340 days or 350 days, it's dark. How does oh. that help a local economy? No. It promotes, if it does anything, it promotes crime. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then it just sits there kind of empty, right? Right. Yeah. Um, as, we, as I let you go, what, what would you say to all of our communities, all of our states that are sitting there thinking, hey, let's, let's go after the next FIFA World Cup? What advice would you give us, our politicians, when it comes to you know, sporting, bringing in the sporting events? You just have to look at it really carefully. I mean, look, at the end of the day, FIFA and the IOC are international monopolies. And they happen to have products that are very popular. And when you're a monopolist and you have popular products, you take advantage of it. And the way the IOC and FIFA do that is is they get the, the cities and the nations of the world to bid against each other. So you have a worldwide competition. And, you know, normally when you have a powerful monopoly within a country, the, the government sets up a regulatory agency to make sure that the consumers are relatively not exploited too much. Right. But here you have an international body, and there's no, there's no regulatory agency internationally that, that can do anything about what FIFA and the IOC does. So you're putting yourself into structurally – a very disadvantageous situation yeah. uh, in, into a market a situation with market power. The other side has a tremendous amount of market power, and you've got none. So you just have to be very careful about it. And uh, you know, I've spoken to the mayor's office in Los Angeles in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I think there's a chance they're they're looking at it in a in a pretty sober way. 
um, it, there's a chance that they're going to put out a bid that just might turn out to be okay. I mean, we huh. still don't know all the details. Yeah. But it's possible to do it in a reasonable way. Uh, it's just not usually done that way. Yeah. In fact, if you already have the resources, like I could see Utah bidding again on a Winter Olympics down the road. But we seem to have the resource. We seem to already have the venues. We have a lot of things that, that are already a great made. Deal. Exactly. Yeah. But if you yeah. have to go reinvent the world, that's that's crazy. Well, <laughs> yeah. we appreciate you, Doctor Andrew Zimbalist. Thank Thanks. you so much. Keep up the great Thank work. You. Again, his book is Circus Maximus: The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. Man, it really. When you think about it, it's such a it's such a gamble, and it's not. You know, it's not to be taken lightly. I remember Utah, we were very into the Salt Lake Olympics. Everyone was so into it. And then that's when that scandal came out. And if you remember, the scandal was about how you have to go about obtaining the bid when you're dealing with these international monopolies. And that the scandal was basically you have to kind of bribe them. You got to grease the skids a little bit. And that was the way you make some movement happen. Uh, all of a sudden, some other country – wins the bid ahead of you simply because, you know, they gave cars away or whatever. I mean, you think about it, the FIFA World Cup's going to Qatar, which is a, a kind of a known terrorist supporting state, and FIFA's going to be playing there in 120-degree deserts where we now have to air-condition stadiums in order to play? What? It seems crazy. But um, it's a big deal. So, folks, sure, it's entertaining. But there are smarter ways to do it. And so if L.A. can pull it out and, – and again, L.A. has the resources. They already have enough venues. You probably don't have to go building a lot of new things, maybe a little you know, whitewashing here and there, some buses to move people around that you don't want seen by the national press. Um, anyway, interesting stuff. Isn't it amazing too how we are all so caught up in sports that – we, I mean, man, I'm telling you, I don't know how Brazil's doing it. How do you build many stadiums for football and soccer and then to hold the World Cup and then bring in the, the IOC and the International Olympic Committee and host the Olympics back-to-back? That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And uh, to go into debt for that? Probably in the end, not worth it. Not worth it. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Um, continue the Matt Townsend Show, again, trying to give you the tools to help you live longer and love stronger. When we come back, we'll do a little Coach's Corner, give you some tools and ideas about your relationships. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, it seems like we're always in search for the next thing that'll make us happy, right? There's, there's just going to be the next thing. The World Cup will make some countries happy. This new legislation will make others happy. We, we're just constantly trying to, to find the next, you know, happy pill. But uh, on today's Coaching Corner, I wanted to talk about the top five things that you actually might not, you might need to get rid of if you want to be happy. So instead of trying to keep aggregating and taking more in and more and more and more, maybe the real power of happiness is being okay with less, right? 
being okay with not not needing more things, not needing more events, not needing the next activity, the next party. You know, we had a we had a really fun um, last week where a, a really close family friend got married. Two family friends actually married each other. It was a really great event. And, you know, I think we had three or four events and we weren't even like in the main circle of the family. We were just kind of on the outside, but we still went to three different events for this wedding. If you were in the circle of the family, you probably had five or six events you had to go to just to just to get married. And I'm thinking, wow, that's exhausting. That is a lot of stuff just to get done. Now, when you're done the next, you know, and you got the next week free, uh, are you just going to relax or are you going to actually go looking for more stuff to do? A lot of us are never happy. We just need to constantly be looking for the next thing, looking for the next thing. Here's the top five things, my little bit of advice for you, that you're going to have to get rid of if you want to be happy. Okay, so you just think about your own life and let's see if we can lose some of these. Number one. The number one thing, uh, first thing we've actually got to get rid of is we've got to write off our longtime grudges. Do you have somebody that you ha- you're holding a grudge against? You just can't let go. Something they did, they hurt you, they said something rude, they did something rude. Maybe it's an ex-spouse, an ex-boyfriend, girlfriend, a business partner. Have you been able to write off the long-term grudge? Because if you can't and you keep dragging that grudge around, guess what, folks? That's yours. You are going to continue to suffer that grudge. And remember, interestingly, the other person that you're holding the grudge against, they probably don't spend any time thinking about you. They may have moved on. Oh, I know that makes me so mad. I hate it when they hurt me and then they move on easily. And I just have to take my pain and suffer with it for the next year. Long-term grudges, folks, they'll kill you. They'll kill you every time. And so one of the activities I'd suggest to help you move forward, commit yourself that you'll write the source of your grudge. Write them a letter. I want you to sit down and write this person that hurt you a letter. Oh, well, I'm not going to mail it. No, I want you to write it as if you're going to hand it to them. And just get all your enemy, get all your venom out, get all your energy out. And, and I want you to get it all out in a couple, two, three, four, five pages worth of writing. And I want you to handwrite it if you can. Oh, that's too exhausting. I know. I want the energy to come out of you. I want you to feel exhausted having done it. Write the letter, finish the letter, sign the letter, and seal it in an envelope. Now the energy's out, the pain is out, the grudge is out. Then you can decide if you're going to do something with it. I'm not saying you need to send the letter, but I want you to build a realistic plan to replace the grudge now. Now that you've got the energy out, what are you going to fill it up with? Are you going to fill it up with more purpose, more vision? What are you going to replace that grudge with? Find something that truly motivates you. Go rebuild the business. Go find new friendships. Grow new friendships. Fill it up with something else and intentionally say, I'm going to fill this space with another friendship. I'm going to fill this space with another opportunity, a business opportunity, and I'm going to knock it out of the park. And then use that same energy that you used to spend feeding the grudge. Use it right now to just go move your life forward. So rule number one, write off the long-term grudge. If you want to, if you feel prompted to, send the letter. 
and just get it out of your system. If you don't, I've seen people do the craziest things. They burn the letter. They have some formal you know, process to, to let the great spirits of the earth take the letter away and take the energy away. I've seen people just take it out, put it on a tree and shoot the crud out of it. The letter, of course. Nothing else. Uh, the second basic tool, the thing you got to deal with and let go of is you got to quit taking the emotional bait. Man, if you notice that a lot of times you take the bait, when somebody says something to you that makes you frustrated, you take the bait every time. I sit and watch my kids fight and they just, they're playing and I can see the older ones kind of teasing the younger one. And it's like, in my head, I'm like, don't take the bait, son. Don't take the bait. One of you is going to end up crying, and it's not going to be the older one. But boy, as soon as um, he starts taking the bait, it's game over. And then the whole day for that kid is ruined because his older brother was teasing him. That happens in all of our lives. We have people that know how to push our buttons. And as soon as you gain the power of letting go of your need to respond to it, just smile and walk away. And the minute you walk away from somebody that's trying to hurt you, you've taken your power back. Examine people in your life, here's an activity for you, who are most likely to try to tip you over emotionally. The ones that like push your buttons. It could be the one just at Christmas once a year that just says that one thing that ticks you off. You'll notice their behavior is fairly predictable. And so if it's so predictable, you can figure out a plan for how you're going to handle it. Next time this person says this one thing that makes you so frustrated, what are you going to do? Come up with a plan. Just And what I like to do is just say the same thing over and over. Oh, boy, there you go again. Never happy. And then I walk away. (laughs) There you go again. Trying to make me mad at you. Ugh, silly, silly. And then walk away. But as soon as you have the power to not react, holy cow, that's one of the most powerful things you can give up are your reactions because in the end, they're not going to help you. They're not going to help you. Uh, Number three, avoid the empty calories of negativity. Some of us are so into just carrying negativity with us. And um, the reality is, is it's just empty energy. So you can be as negative as you want. It just doesn't feed you. It just won't feed you. So I just suggest as an activity, make it a goal every day to find the stuff that's working. Find some positive things that happened to you today and start making a list. Just three a day. Three positive things that you found beautiful or wonderful or or an example of something that just was very positive. Once you start counting your many blessings, you know what? Amazing things start to happen. Teach your children, for example, how important it is to see the good and um, and have them make a note of it. When they sit down to dinner, why don't you go around the table and have everyone give you a chance and everyone shares one thing that happened in their day-to-day that was really positive. I'm telling you, if you spend one month writing down three positive things a day in your life, you're going to see positive. And you're going to notice that the calories of the positive are much more fulfilling and give you so much more and better energy than the calories that come from the negative stuff of life. You know, the emotional calories I'm talking about. So um, let's avoid the negativity. The fourth thing we need to get rid of, get rid of the same old stories. Get rid of them. You're done. Quit telling the story if it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work anymore. If you have to have a story for why you do something that's dysfunctional, then you keep just believing the story. It doesn't matter why you didn't work out today. It doesn't matter why. (laughs) There's a million stories. Well, I was really busy and today I had to get up super early and 
Great. But the story doesn't replace working out. So quit telling it. We A lot of us think, if I've got a really good story, it justifies why I completely eat two boxes of Twinkies a week. It doesn't matter. Well, my mother was really hard. To, it doesn't matter. If you keep telling the story, the story automatically justifies your problem. So don't justify it anymore by having a story. And I'm not telling you that there aren't real stories. People have real reasons to be mad. But if you keep retelling the same old story about how broken down you were and how misused you were, it's not going to ha- help you. Yesterday we spent some time with Kimberly Giles talking about this, uh, you know, the victim life and the victim story. And it's the exact same thing. If you keep telling the victim story, you remain a victim. One of my great heroes is Elizabeth Smart, who's kidnapped by a crazy psycho, and she will not be framed as a victim. She's a victim's advocate, but she's not going to be framed by this yahoo the rest of her life. She's moved on. Sure, she was victimized, and she's changing her life and doing this and doing this, and she feels good about herself and is having a baby, and she's a powerful woman. Get rid of the story. Turn it into something else. Clean it up. Make it more positive, more powerful. Put yourself back in the power position. The final thing we need to get rid of is we've got to finally face our fears. So many of us are running away from our deepest fears. And in the end, you're not going to run out. You're not going to outrun the fear. You have to, you have to face the fear. And as soon as you face the fear, take it on. So if the worst thing in the world could happen to you today, what would happen then? Then what would you do? You'd handle it. If you found out your spouse was having an affair, and that is the scariest thing you could ever face in your life, if you found it out, guess what would happen? You'd handle it. If your child died in a car accident, guess what would happen? You'd handle it. If you failed that test today that you're so worried about in school, guess what would happen? You'd handle it, and tomorrow's another day. Once you face the fear and you realize you can handle it, then what? Well, then, well, I guess I ought to move on and start handling life. The reality is most of the time your worst fears never come true. And if they do, you'll handle it. You always have. You always will. The amazing task and and learning about everybody in life is you probably will never face your biggest fear, really, because the biggest thing that could – worst thing that could ever happen to you usually doesn't ever happen to you. But if it did, you'd handle it. Because you're just that kind of person. Anyway, five basic things. You got to write off if you want to be happy. Write off your grudges. Quit taking the emotional bait. Avoid the empty calories of negativity. Send the same old stories out to the cleaners. And finally, face your fears. And when you do, folks, you'll handle it. That's it. Happiness, folks, comes from your resiliency, your ability to handle your life. Happiness doesn't come by adding more and more junk to your life more and more complications. That's not going to bring the happiness. Just complications. That's the Matt Townsend Show, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. 
Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Man, we've got a great show for you coming up. Uh, Warren Price will be joining us. He is um, he's helping. He's a therapist that helps people cope with their stresses, especially PTSD, through nature and recreation. Meaning, how about fly fishing? And, uh, you know, nothing can frustrate me more sometimes than trying to go fishing. Uh, but have you been on the Provo River? Yes. Oh. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. We went floating. We floated the Pro- the Provo River just in tubes. Mm-hmm. And it was Did you fish too though? No, no. no fishing, we we no. actually ruined just a lot floating. of fishing for people. <laughs> we just would we yeah, just Yeah, they kinda... don't like that when you're screaming no. as you're floating down the river. And the water's really cold and so but it's very oh, it's very peaceful. So 80% of the time incredibly peaceful. 20% of the time ticked off because I'm stuck in some tree somewhere. <laughs> That's overgrown. So speaking of fishing, are you the one that – do you like to put the worm on the hook? Are you, uh, I don't mind that. Can you do that? Okay. Yeah, I don't mind that. Um, mm-hmm. I, do you clean the fish? Oh, no. 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 You don't do that. In fact, I do – I choose to catch and release, not because I'm an environmentalist, just because I do not want to clean that fish. <laughs> the fish – and I, I wasn't – I never really liked fish. Mm-hmm. Did you like yeah, fish? Yeah, no, I'm not – no. I don't well, like fish. I used to be – I used to go deep sea fishing with my grandparents and – that was fun because you always had a bait boy, and the bait boy would do all the work. The bait boy? They call him the bait boy. Okay. Well, I've been broken down, scattered wow. around, and I pick Thanks, Mike. That's Mike's favorite song. <laughs> that was a good promo just thrown in there. Very Mike good. just put his head down on the board, and then the next thing you know. I was pressing, and it wouldn't do anything. <laughs> hey, um, this uh, – did you hear that – did you hear about um, – your ground beef? No. Do you like to, do you like to eat like Not hamburger? A lo- uh, sometimes I don't eat a lot, but sometimes. Why, well, is I, it, I is eat a bad? lot. You and, do? <sighs> maybe not anymore. Um, <laughs> a close look at ground beef reveals some pretty disturbing stuff, according to Consumer Reports. Their investigation found that some 300 packages containing 458 pounds of ground beef that were bought at stores of all kinds in 26 cities. And every single package contained fecal contamination. Oh, my. Well, there goes my hamburger for today. <laughs> Not going there for lunch. It's more than just gross, they say. It can cause serious illness when beef isn't cooked to the recommended 160 degrees Fahrenheit. See, and I like mine rare. I did, too. I used to. Not anymore. How rare do you want it? I want the fecal matter <laughs> just raging. Um Anyway, the, apparently these cows, I don't know, apparently they're messy. I would think, yes. And they get a lot of manure on their skin, which contains this bacteria. And then when they get into the processing plant, it doesn't always. Oh, wow. Anyway. Yeah, uh, just uh, ruined everybody's breakfast or yeah, lunch, wherever it's they're just, at. It ruined, I don't want to be a downer, but <laughs> let's just go with chicken today. Yep. I'm sure chicken's got its own problems. We'll find out that tomorrow. Oh, show. yes. Uh, anyway, um, not to not to blow that. Let's see if let's let's shoot it over to Kathy and see if she's got better news. I do. Starting off the top, U.S. stocks rebounded this morning as the Dow climbed back over the sixteen thousand mark. Also this morning, the Chinese central bank cut interest rates by one quarter of a percentage point. Economist Max Wolf talks about the effect to everyday people. 
Suddenly, U.S. stocks have corrected. They're down 10% from their highs, and they're at valuations that are much more attractive. We've been in a six-year bull run, and bull markets don't go on forever. It may be an opportunity for investors to step in, and we may see some bargain hunters do just that. Investors were hungry to buy this morning after the Dow closed nearly 600 points at the end of trading yesterday. Two Republican leaders are hoping to make Donald Trump's quest for the GOP nomination more difficult. Party leaders in Virginia and North Carolina are reportedly considering a push to make candidates who enter the Republican race to pledge not to run as a third-party candidate and support the eventual nominee. That's something Trump would not do at the first debate. The officials say they hope this proposal will convince Trump to be more fully committed to the Republican. Party. Meanwhile, speculation continues to swirl over whether or not Vice President Joe Biden will for the presidential race. His aides say he'll make that decision by the end of September. White House Press Secretary Josh Earnest said he wouldn't rule out the possibility of President Obama endorsing someone before the future nominee is selected. IndyCar driver Justin Wilson died last night after he suffered a head injury during a race at Pocono Raceway on Sunday. Wilson was hit after a car ahead of him hit into the wall. The accident is now raising concerns about the safety of the sport. Justin was a man that was totally in love with the sport that he chose as his, as his life's ambition. That he was probably the favorite driver of all the drivers in the paddock. He leaves behind a very big legacy as to how a race car driver should act on and off the racetrack. That was former Indy driver Eddie Cheever. Wilson leaves behind a wife and two daughters. Wildfires continue to burn in central Washington state, making this the worst fire season in the state's history. Five wildfires grew more than 26 square miles, covering nearly 257,000 acres. The fires are only 10 percent contained and threaten nearly 5,000 homes. Officials fear the fires could burn for several more months. The roommate of the man suspected of killing a Louisiana state trooper was found dead yesterday afternoon. It wasn't known whether the roommate had been killed by Kevin Daigle, the man arrested for shooting 43-year-old Stephen Vincent on Sunday. Officials are trying to determine the time of death for the deceased roommate and if Daigle was responsible. And according to the American Customer Satisfaction Index, we now know America's most disliked car, Matt. What? You're not driving it, so that's a good thing. It's the Fiat, made by Fiat Chrysler. In fact, three cars from that manufacturer were at the bottom of the list. Really? So according to the numbers, overall Americans are less in love with their cars than they were a year ago due to so many recalls. Of the 27 brands tracked, 15 lost customer satisfaction. Only two gained ground, Acura and BMW. So here we go from number one to 10. Lexus, Acura, Lincoln, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Subaru, Toyota, Hyundai, Buick, and Cadillac. Your Honda, number 11. Yeah, number 11. Interesting. See, the top five are like luxury. I'm going to have to get a luxury car. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, I've been trying. My son has been trying to tell you that. I know. Yeah. I need like a, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't mind a Beamer. I really, I really would like that. Actually, I had an Acura that I loved. Did you? I loved my Acura. Uh-huh. See, but if I get a car like that, I will get arrested. <laughs> Because I'll go Why, fast. Why, you go too fast? Yeah. Just don't buy red because red, I think, gets the most tickets. Oh, see, and the I've red heard. is what yeah. I would buy. I would have yeah, bought a red buy. fast car. I'm thinking of just now buying a Fiat. Don't do that. Okay. Apparently, according Pea to this green. anyway, yeah, hmm. it's probably not a good idea. It's the most hated car apparently. So. That is yeah. just tragic. Yeah. Because there are those those little cute yes, you know, those death little, mobiles. Uh, yes, very small. Those, I mean, nothing wrong yeah. with dying. No, not if you're – Older. But if you're going to die, you don't want to die in a car accident. You want to die eating ground beef. 
With fecal matter. <laughs> With fecal matter in Let it. Let it go to your brain and <sighs> yeah, get the old mad cow thing going. Yeah. Hey, um, that's uh, that's good news, I guess. But see, it's interesting. Honda is lower than Hyundai yeah. and apparently Honda others. had some of the most recalls. Yeah, uh, they had the airbag problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had a Honda. I loved it. Oh, I it's really the did. Car. I loved my car. But that's uh, lower than the car I'm driving now. So I'm pretty glad that I switched. Yeah. See, jeez, yeah. now you're kind of bragging. <laughs> Tired of all Sorry. that. Tired of all the bragging. <laughs> anyway, good news. That's great news. Kathy Aiken bringing us the good news. I bring you the ground beef recall problem. Um, actually, not not a recall. Just just know that in your ground beef, there might be some extra additive, some supplements that uh, you're going to need to make sure you cook your ground beef to 160 degrees Fahrenheit. Hey, uh, we got a great guest coming up in just a few minutes. His name is Warren Price, and he served uh, in the military and in the war. He was a medic uh, over in Iraq, and um, you know what? He's 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 back, and he he's suffering from PTSD, and he's here to tell us that your leisure activities, folks, really could end up saving your lives. He's going to teach us about how what you do that you know lets you unwind. Could, could really help you unwind from even some of the more serious uh, psychological issues like PTSD. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. How do you deal with stress? You know, for many of us, time with nature, anything from biking to hiking, picnicking, meditating, just walking out in nature can be very beneficial. But what are you supposed to do when it comes to extreme stress? Our guest today, Warren Price, has an incredible story he's here to share with us. Upon um, returning from Iraq, Mr. Price, who was a medic over in Iraq, experienced all of the symptoms of PTSD. Where he found peace, however, has changed his life and is changing the lives of others. And it uh, has to do, believe it or not, with fly fishing. He joins us now. Welcome to the show, Mr. Price. Warren Price. Hello, Matt. Thank you for having me. You bet. Great to have you here. Now, you, uh, you were a BYU alum, right? I am. I graduated. Uh, I finished my master's degree there in 2013. Good stuff. And thank you for your service over in Iraq. I mean, that that really is kind of the beginning of your story, isn't it? Uh, thank you. It is, actually. Talk to, us, talk to us about what happened. You were a medic over in Iraq, uh, and I'm sure you saw more things than you ever needed to or wanted to see. And then you came home and started suffering PTSD. It, it was. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I, I came home from Iraq, and, and uh, I knew so many people who had gone through uh, what I would think were more heart-harrowing experiences than I'd ever had. And I, But I, you, you put it well. I saw more than I cared to have seen. Oh. Um, but I, I did come home, and, and hoping, thinking, you know, it was all over. I was hoping to just move on with my life, and Unfortunately, after a, just a few weeks at home, um, I began to be uh, become paranoid around other people. I uh, was having difficulty going out in public. Even even going to the store, going to Walmart uh, was unbearable just because there were 
groups of people um, driving on the highway with uh, any kind of traffic uh, was was stressful, even going to work. Um, and that, that bled over into my family life. Unfortunately, um, at the time we had, it's not unfortunate that we had kids, but <clears throat> unfortunately for my family, they were still very young and and as young kids will do, they get noisy and sometimes they cry. Right. And for for me, that was a trigger, and it brought back you know some pretty painful memories. And and at the time, I just didn't have the tools to deal with them, and and uh, I became unbearable at home. I uh, had an explosive temper. Um, it it was almost as though I was the Hulk. One minute I was this mild mannered um, Doctor Baxter, and the next minute I was this raging lunatic, throwing things and screaming and yelling and and nobody knew exactly what would set it off huh um, well and when i think about that you were one of how many soldiers that are coming back with similar issues uh ptsd is it's very commonplace now isn't it it is and, and the thing is i think it has always been commonplace it's just in past generations they didn't know what to call it um whether it was all that that person's just weak-minded, or um, he's shell-shocked, or he's got, um, you know, the, they, had, they had so many different names for it. <clears throat> it didn't actually finally get a psych- psychiatric name until 1985, um, but it is, the estimates are somewhere between 20 to 40, even as high as 60% of people who go uh, and experience combat will come home with some form of post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. Um, Many people, though, in the military don't want to admit it because admitting that there's something psychologically wrong with you is is tantamount to admitting your career is over. Um, uh, And for me, I I didn't want my career to be over, but my symptoms spiraled out of control. I had a confrontation with um, a first sergeant with a commander that um, I ended up being ordered into into treatment, hmm. um, and as and as that progressed, it definitely uh, it definitely put an end to my career yeah. uh, as a national guardsman and even in the military. Well, and maybe um, thank heavens in a way, right? Because uh, it may have gotten you into treatment when you you wouldn't have done it otherwise. <coughs> Pardon me. Yeah. <coughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. No, you're good. <coughs> Cough. It. Um, <laughs> What's common with a lot of veterans is they, uh, <coughs> sorry, they will try to treat themselves, whether it's um, use of illicit drugs or alcohol, or unfortunately, in a lot of in a lot of cases, it turns uh, turns out to be suicide. And it's a sad statistic. When I came home in 2005, 18 veterans a day were committing suicide for various reasons. Yeah, right. But a lot of it had to do with post traumatic stress. Sadly, now I've been home ten years. That number's uh, around thirty-two, um, and it's it's indicative that you know we're trying everything we can, but at some point you do get to the end of your rope, and it doesn't see, it doesn't seem like there's any hope. I, I've been in that situation. I, I was hospitalized twice because I uh, got to the point where I was ready to take my life, and uh, it was. Uh, I, I spent a couple of times in acute psychiatric um, care facilities, and it was after one of my stays uh, in that hospital that uh, my wife actually found a solution for me. She had a friend from high school who also was a combat veteran only from the Gulf War, 
and uh, he'd been suffering, you know, multiple uh, issues, and he had used fly fishing to rehabilitate himself. And uh, he extended an invitation for me to go to Idaho and fly fish with him, and and uh, I didn't know him from Adam, and and I I did I had a very hard time trusting new people or sure. even trusting people I'd known for years, and I put him off and put him off. I I came up with every excuse I could not to go, um, and and finally because my wife wouldn't relent, and and this guy was very persistent, I agreed, and uh, it. It, it not it changed only changed your life. my life, yeah. it saved my life. Now, in fact, so talk about that because – so you finally went fly fishing with this guy and – but you were you were first suffering PTSD symptoms that were like flashbacks and nightmares and nightmares and anxiety and depression, suicidal thoughts, anger that led to blowups. And then all of a sudden you get out on the river and what happens to you? So it – there, we are a product of nature. We, you know, yeah. um, we, I, I think we we're created by the same the same hands that created nature. And once we get out in nature, there's a there's a chord within us that rings true. And uh, here it was the first time I, and up until this point, I had tried everything to relieve my symptoms. I'd, I'd, I'd been listening to my doctors at the VA. I'd been going to group and personal therapy. Um, they were, they had me on so many medications that honestly, I, I've forgotten three years of my life. Um, and the medication wasn't working and the, the counseling wasn't working. And I, and I turned to, I turned to my faith and, and, you know, blessings and prayers and fasting didn't seem to be helping. And, and I really did feel at the end of my rope. And, and here, my my friend takes me fly fishing. And for the first time in two years, I get out and I experience something greater than myself. Hmm. I experience nature in its purity. And, and for some reason, standing there, you know, we were fly fishing from a boat and feeling the the rocking motion of the water and and hearing the the occasional rock as it tumbles under the water and the and the rushing uh the rushing of the water and the breeze it's as though nature embraced me and um while I was on the water while I was fly fishing and hoping to catch trout it seemed as though Everything else, those those nightmares, the intrusive thoughts, the angry outbursts, um, everything, the paranoia um, disappeared. And for a moment, it was me and my fly and this trout at the other end of my at the other end of the line. And um, you know, it the the scriptures tell us that the voice of God is the sound of many rushing waters. Huh. And for me, I heard. God speak to me, and it was one word, and it was peace, and it was the first time in several years that I'd felt anything other than the anger, other than the, the fear, the anxiety. It was the first time where I felt that I had hope that I might actually be able to survive this. Wow. And what a blessing, really, to be able to sit there and to just start almost allowing your pain to kind of be washed down that river. Exactly. It, um, and it's, there's something about nature that does cleanse us. And, and like I said, it, 
we're a product of nature. Yeah. And um, it, that, that set me on a path, actually. First of all, I had an experience that gave me hope that I could survive. Now, you know, that first, that first time, you know, that peace maybe lasted a day. And then I went back to my, my regular life, and, and things seemed to fall apart. But I had something that I could look back on as, well, I, you know, if I can get out to the water. And sometimes I wasn't able to fish. Sometimes I was only able to go sit by uh, a river and meditate and, and listen to the sound. Um, but, but I couldn't always escape to go fishing. And uh, so my friend taught me how to tie flies. And... Um, and I, I discovered that as I was concentrating on this very small hook and, and tiny material, that I would experience the same peace that I had out on the river. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it worked for me. And, and I was, at the time, I was, I was a patient just like anybody else. And um, I, I decided to study recreation and, and why it was that recreation worked uh, so well when medication and self-medicating and alcohol and all those things just didn't work. They just seemed to exacerbate the problem. Yeah. And uh, that's what led me back to back to BYU to finish a master's degree and become a recreation therapist. That You know, I found something that worked and I wanted to help other veterans uh, find something that worked for them. You know what? It's beautiful. Um, let's take a break. We're speaking with Ryan or Warren Price uh, on the line here. He is a licensed recreational therapist and um, is partnering with the Wounded Warrior Project to teach other vets how to uh, use recreation, like fly fishing, for example, in this case, um, and others, how to use recreation to help heal. When we come back, we'll be picking uh, Warren's brain to find out what are some of the principles of finding peace in your own recreation. Man, interesting stuff, isn't it? Nature healing. Uh, you don't need necessarily always need all the meds. You don't need all the, all the other help. Sometimes just getting back to nature can heal as well. We'll take a break. More with Warren Price right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Where do you heal best? Where do you find your peace? Our our guest, uh, Warren Price, is joining us, and he found his healing on the river. After coming back from the Iraqi war and uh, having seen many things that uh, we probably shouldn't have to ever see and just experience, he came back with PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, and was suffering some of uh, the great, the horrible, really, repercussions of that um, disorder. And as part of that, even didn't didn't want to continue life. Um, eventually, he you know, was basically told he had to go get help. But the help that seemed to help the most was just on a river and um, fly fishing with, with a friend. Uh, Warren Price, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Matt. You bet. And um, you now are um, you're a recreational therapist, a licensed recreational therapist. 
you now have done this enough where you said at first, you know, you'd go to the river, you'd fill all of, of that piece and it would last maybe a day. But over time, you you found healing on the river. What what um, what are some of the steps? What are the principles that you noticed you went through that that created a healing that that's lot more lasting now? Now that lasts more than maybe a day. I think that the first and foremost with post traumatic stress and and any kind of stress, and actually I think it can be extended to any kind of difficulty that people go through. Um, the major problem is that we focus inward, that we're looking at our problem. It becomes so large that we can't see anything else. Um, and uh, it either leads us to feel sorry for ourselves or it leads us to feel overwhelmed. Or um, it, 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 uh, The problem is that we're focusing inward. And the first step is to realize the need to look outward. Um, and uh, in some cases to look upward. Um, we need to be able to connect with something larger than ourselves. Now, I know that oftentimes people will, um, it sounds a bit trite that they'll say, well, you really need to look outside of yourself or, you know, you, you need to uh, you need to look at things uh, via the, bit, the big picture. And that's easier said than done. Um, but first, the first step was being willing to try something new um, and to hope that something would work to, to ease my suffering. And um, once I found that, and I found that <clears throat> I could consistently either return to that or I could, for me, I, I began to expand into any kind of recreational activity, painting, um, sculpting, um, you know, horseback riding, hiking. <clears throat> Fly fishing isn't going to work for everybody. Right. But there will, but there will be an activity that works for everybody. Um, it's, it's just a matter of finding that and, and, and working until you find that. But uh, for me, the, the key to really getting better was after I had found something that worked, I, I felt a need to reach out and help others who were suffering. Um, I, I needed to connect with something, a cause bigger than just my PTSD. Um, and, and that that meant I was I needed to reach out and help other veterans. Now, there's been some great programs, and you mentioned uh, that I've, I've worked in the past with Wounded Warrior Project, and there's many other programs out there. Uh, the National Ability Center in Park City, um, the Project Healing Waters. There's projects going on all over the country where um, <clears throat> we people have realized the benefits of outdoor recreation and, uh, in helping veterans. And what we discovered in my family is that you can take the veteran out of the home situation and you can treat him for a few days and he'll be better. But if you send him back home, that's, that's akin to taking a very fine German watch or let's say a Swiss watch and taking one cog out of it and sending it off somewhere to get fine-tuned and then bringing it back and putting it back in a broken watch and wondering why it doesn't work. Hmm. Um, the the effects of post traumatic stress aren't experienced in a vacuum. It's not not just the veteran, but the, the whole family experiences it. And we wanted to do something a little different, where we treated the whole family. Um, now, the currently insurances don't cover this, and and 
some of the organizations are starting to expand out and work with the families. But um, when PTSD causes you to, well, to break relationships, and sometimes you have to relearn the ability to communicate with just the basic things with your families. Um, but uh, we discovered that through recreation, we can teach veterans how to repair their relationships. And some of the most uh, some of the most successful <coughs> activities that we do uh, with veterans and their families involve animals, uh, and that's actually that's what's led my wife and I to our next phase in life. While we still try to work with veterans, we used to do <coughs> week long recreation trips for whole families, and uh, and you know by building relationships with other veterans and other caregivers uh, and and giving them a support system. Now we've we've discovered that in working with animals, whether it's whether it's horses or goats or uh, puppies or kittens, um, it's very difficult to hang on to depression and anxiety when you have a lap full of kittens. <laughs> That's um, true, huh? And I know that sounds a little trite, but yeah. really you should try it. I mean, be really upset and depressed, and then hold a bunch of kittens that are so cute and adorable. There's something about this human-animal bond that comes natural to us. Um, And if we can teach veterans to bond with animals, that's the same process that we use to bond with other people. And and so what we do now, we actually bought a small farm in uh, southern Idaho, and we're raising animals. And it's been amazing um, in our lives how quickly some of our relationships have, have improved. Um, by working with animals, and that's actually what we'd like to start doing more of is, is, is perhaps, you know, one by one bringing families out, um, getting them to um, feel at home on the farm, maybe play with the baby pigs or, right. or you know, or the animals or the chickens, uh, and then use that to improve their quality of life. Um, and a lot of times it, it's just teaching them you know, they just don't know what to do. And it may be as simple as, as uh, sitting down to dinner and having dinner every night. That's a recreational activity. And teaching, the, you know, our fellow veterans, here's some of the things that you want to do while you're eating. Here's some of the topics that you want to do. And, and uh, you get them laughing and you get them enjoying time. And, and doggone it if they don't remember that they love each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's so the, that final step is actually being, for me, has been my transition from patient to practitioner, which has been able to to see not only does it help me, but I'm helping, I'm using my experience now to help other people. That's got to be so fulfilling. I mean, these are your fellow, you know, these are your comrades. These are your buddies. Um, and to be able to actually, whether it's, you know, bring them to your farm and, and let them experience the animals or to go step into a river. There was a really interesting comment I read in the article um, that was here on BYU campus about you, um, that when you step into your waders and then you step into the river, it feels like you're being held, like you're being hugged by the river. It, it, it's it's quite literally an embrace. Yeah. And... Um, I, I can't, I can't, I wish words could do it justice, but there's, there's a, it's like something that's missing from your life is suddenly put back in it. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's a feeling of wholeness. And I know that when I came home, you know, 
sadly, I didn't feel like I was the same person who left. And I felt like something very important, very, um, very important of me had, had either died or was missing. And by stepping back into the river, it was like that was given back to me. Um, and yeah, it, you, you should try it. You really should. No, step yeah. Into the water and feel and feel the embrace, and it, it it's it was life changing. Well, and just ju- it seems like just the um, the reality of being out in the sunlight and letting the sun heal you, right? And then the river hugging you and having the challenge of dealing with trying to find an animal and the the creativity of the fly. It, so it seems like when you're dealing with um, the, the healing benefits, even, so that's all fly fishing, but it seems like the other side of just any new art or handling the kittens and being a part of that, these this is just really engaging our minds in something else other than our worry, our stress, our anxiety. Absolutely, it's just preoccupying it, isn't it? Is that how it heals it us? It it is, you know. And the, the title, a lot of people ask me, well, how do you get the title of your your article? Um, so I and I share in in the article um, three traumatic events that happened to me while I was in Iraq, and then um, for a lot of people. You hear, you can you can hear a list of of signs and symptoms of post traumatic stress, and that's all they are is words on a page. And I wanted to express to people, well, what does that look like in life? And when I came home, you know these these nightmares. You know, people think, oh, nightmare. I've had a nightmare. Um, and so I I explain how that related to an experience that I had in Iraq, and I I was experiencing a nightmare, and I. Was having a, a hand-to-hand combat fight with this person in my dream, and I actually woke up and I was on top of my wife, punching my wife, uh. and that's how you know that's how permeating post-traumatic stress can be. It gets in, into your subconscious, and um, and I, I realized that by sharing that, people will think, "Wow, what a monster! What kind of a oh, yeah. what kind of a monster would would beat his wife? You know, whether he was asleep or not." Right, um, but after after having exposure to recreation and fly fishing and and fly tying um that has the power to reach the same recesses of our mind and and so one night one night i woke up in the morning i woke up and my my wife says i noticed you were dreaming last night and typically that would not have been a pleasant experience for her yeah because my my sleep and my my dreams were pretty violent and she says you were you were mumbling. I couldn't understand words you were saying, but your hands were going through the motions of tying flies, <laughs> and um, and that so recreation has the ability to change us from the point where we wake up doing something horrible like hitting somebody to it actually calms and 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 gives us peace even even when we're unprotected. Yeah, um, and. And uh, it, for us, that was that was when we realized, wow, we really have to share this with other people. If 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 I can go from being violent and her not wanting to be near me at night to I'm gentle and tying flies in my sleep, um, there's got to be something about this recreation that that we need to share with other people. That's beautiful. And so that is part of the process then, right? So, and this is so it, it's not just that you're going to recreate and you're just going to keep 
partying the rest of your life and having fun. It's it's that you whenever you suffer the stress of the post-traumatic moment and you're going back to those memories and thoughts, you then have this default, this fallback, either activity or just process that you can use to help take you out of the traumatic moment and heal it. Exactly. And and the, the, the traumatic moment, so post-traumatic stress is actually pretty normal. Yeah. It, because it, you've you've had something extraordinarily not normal happen to you and your brain wants to make sense of it and we we don't have a point of reference we don't have something we can do to 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 make sense out of it and that's what causes these problems but when we're able to take ourselves out and and there's something about recreation that causes our brains to be able to categorize these abnormal experiences that it helps us to make sense of it. And once we've made sense of it and, and dealt with it and, and filed it away in our brain where it needs to go, um, we, have, we have a little more control over it. And right. I'm not saying that, you know, this is the magic purple right. pill. You know, but, but it's one. It I mean, it's something, helps. yeah. It is something, yes. That's beautiful. Um, as we wrap up, um, tell us, Warren, what would you say uh, the importance of families are to maybe the the service person that's suffering with PTSD, and then will you also just tell us? Um, I mean, th- th- there's hope, right? There's hope for all of those listeners out there who have somebody in their life that's suffering from that. There's hope to be found. <laughs> the importance of family. Um, it, the the family is the basic unit of society. It's where we. Um, it, it's it's where we find purpose and meaning in life. Um, unfortunately, because of post traumatic stress, those uh, those individuals divorce at a rate three times three times the normal rate in, in the public mm. um, because they just can't get past um, or, or they can't get the help to get past the issues that they're dealing with. Um, they are the support system that will help a person heal and we we set out to try and save as many families as we possibly could one veteran at a time saving those families because um without the support it's very easy to spiral out of control and and then really feel as though you have nowhere else to turn but to give up so i i can't emphasize how important families are but they're key. They're key in in um, in a in a veteran's recovery. And what I have learned from personal experience is because I've been I've been at the end of my rope. I've been at the point where I wanted to take my life. I've had a plan. I've been I've been to that point where I really felt as though I had been abandoned by everybody. Um, that nobody understood me. That there was nowhere else to turn. That that there that it all was darkness and and there is hope um you you just have to open your heart and open your mind to the possibility that something may help and it it may be fly fishing it may be um reading it, it there there are countless activities that would that would be able to give us hope 
but primarily it comes from those relationships that um, that mean the most to us and our family. And and I I wish we it was very uncomfortable to share these things about mm-hmm. myself um, because I I really did academically I mean I shared the deepest darkest secrets of my life. And really, if there was, if there's just one veteran, or it doesn't even have to be a veteran, because there's lots of people that experience stress or, or post-traumatic stress or, or any kind of situation that would make them feel at the end of the rope. If we could just save one life, that would be worth oh, it. Yeah. That would be worth all the, all that we went through in order to share, you know, in order to share our experience. But um, the. I, you know, I just, I just wish I could express to everybody who goes through these things how valuable they really are, and how, and how, what a great impact they are making in people's lives. And if they would just hang in a little bit longer, that it can get better. That it, that, um, that they can find purpose in life again, and they can find that fulfillment. And. Um, that's what this whole process has done for me. You bet. Well, Warren Price, we appreciate you. And um, how can people reach you if they want to find out about your ranch? And, and if, it sounds like you've got a rooster back there that is needing some serious love. I'm sorry. He <laughs> no, it's great. From 4 o'clock in the morning till about 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> Welcome to the farm, Warren. <laughs> yes. Um, they, uh, they can get a hold of me. Um, my, my email is warren.price at uh, gmail.com. Uh, they can also find, um, they can find us on Facebook. I, I do a little blog um, called Farming for Dummies, <laughs> and uh, I'm the dummy that, that, that we talk about all the things that happen on the farm. Or they can also find us on Facebook with our Freedoms Families page. That's great. Well, we appreciate you. Warren Price, keep up the great work and uh, keep the healing going. Excellent stuff. Isn't that awesome? Appreciate you, Warren. Uh, We're going to take a break, folks. Stick with us. We'll be right back talking more here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Isn't it powerful? There's something that is so true and unique about anybody's ability to just heal themselves. If you'll just allow, if you just allow, you know, the the healing to come. So Warren goes out on the river, and by the way, doesn't want to go. Right? He he is. He's got this friend that learned how to find peace on the river, and um, Warren's like, I don't even know the guy. His wife's like, no, really, you need to go. You really, really, really need to go. So he goes. So interesting. The promptings of a, of a, a wonderful spouse led him to the river and a guy that already had kind of found peace there, and then he gets out there. And slowly he starts to figure it out um, – for himself. I mean, one of the things I'm finding as a relationship coach and just a life coach is I believe overall the answers to all of your problems, 
They lie. They already exist in you. You know the answers. So many people that end up making it to my office, they they come in like I'm going to heal them. And the reality is uh, they already know what their answers are. They know what they need to do. They just, I guess, needed somebody to, to be there to prompt them. So if the answers are already in you, then you you could – and I don't want to – you could get a therapist. You could get a psychiatrist. You could get a coach. You could go to your pastor, your minister, your bishop, your leader. Um, but in the end, I, I think you might need to do all of them. But isn't that really why we're here? We're just on this big ball of mud to figure out – I call it to figure out our code. What is it that that I need? I don't I don't have post traumatic stress. I didn't go to Iraq. That's not my trial, but that's Warren's trial. And he went and found some peace and some solutions and principles in um in his journey. He found them in the river. But then he can also change them and turn them into painting and sculpting and horseback riding and now he's going to get into farming and he's finding healing there. Every one of us are we're going to find it somewhere. But I guess part of the key is we've just got to have enough hope that we'll keep looking, right, that we don't give up. We just need to keep trying, need to keep looking. And um, if I can find something today that will alleviate 15 percent of my anxiety in this moment, that's something I need to remember. And if I can find something in another week or two that alleviates another 15 percent of my anxiety or troubles, that's another thing. And if I can do it in the healthiest way possible over time, we'll start to build a solution that's very unique to us. For some, they just need to go running, you know, just running. Simply getting moving helps so many people. For others, it's not that. They need to be serving. They need a a service opportunity. For others, they need to give. For others, they need to create music or be creative. Everybody has their gift. Everybody has their ability. And there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. There's not a silver bullet that will take care of everything. And there's not something that every – you know, even though the pharmaceutical companies may want to sell us the answer, even their answer is not always the full answer, right? And even if it does work for some, it's not always complete, So just keep looking and knowing. And that's one of the reasons we do the show is so that we give you enough options that try. Try 20 things and pick up three. And tomorrow we'll try another and we'll pick up another. We'll see. It's it's pretty basic. But also I think it's also the key to life. Never giving up and continually just trying to become better. Not perfect. But the word perfect, perfect by definition actually means whole. It means complete. And our job is we need to go find a whole answer to all of our problems, not just a one answer that seemingly works for some, and not an answer that ends up costing us down the road, an answer that's more whole, that's more complete, okay? Uh, we'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back uh, next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. Stick with us, my friends. Can't do it without you. We'll be right back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the tools to live longer, to love stronger, and to lead the people that you're with. you got to lead. At some point, somebody's got to step up and lead. And uh, that's, not always, that's not always an easy deal. In fact, by the way, the stock market is rebounding, which is a great sign. So, uh, you know, some leadership going on there. Um, and when we're in the midst of trying to choose a political leader, you know, Sometimes we sit there and wonder, is anybody leading here? Is anybody actually going to lead? Well, uh, Jeb Bush, I don't know if you remember, he made a, a comment a while ago about anchor babies, and um, which was offensive, right? Anchor babies, um, it's, kind, it's, a negative, it's a negative way of, of saying um, – of identifying parents who have – that are not legally – or are not in the United States – that have a child in the United States, right? And by the 14th Amendment, that child then has is a U.S. citizen. And so um, a lot of times they, they refer to those, those babies as anchor babies. Well, Jeb Bush made a comment about that. And then I don't, I don't know if you remember, he had a little testy back and forth with some of the media where he's like, what? Give me another word. Give me another word. And he was, he was trying to basically argue, I need a, another word for that if you don't like anchor babies. Well, now... He, Jeb Bush is actually caught between the Democrats and Donald Trump on these issues, and he's not finding it an easy place to be. He's been getting a hard time from the Clinton campaign for his use of the term anchor babies last week and in a speech in the border town of uh, McAllen, Texas, yesterday. He urged people, just relax. you got to chill out. Chill out. We don't – we need to take a step back, he said, and chill out. And, you know, as far as it's related to political correctness, which is interesting because now that's what Donald Trump was saying. It's so weird. Now, in a weird way, Jeb's starting to sound a little bit like Donald, but he's, you know, a lot of people are going to like that. We don't need all this political correctness, he's saying. But when he was saying, when he was talking about these, you know, quote, anchor babies, he said he wasn't saying it about Mexican-Americans or Hispanics. He was saying anchor babies as it related more to the fraud that more related to Asian people coming into our country, having children in that in that when they get here and taking advantage of the birthright citizenship idea. So he wasn't saying Hispanic anchor babies. He was saying, I guess, Asian anchor babies. You know, like that again, makes a big difference. Yeah, again, anyway. I just think the minute – you're having to reiterate what you mean by a derogatory term, you're in trouble. Yeah. Can't we all just get along? It's a very it's a it's a crazy thing. So anyway, the tangled web and off we go. Hey, on the show today, we got a great guest uh coming up that's gonna be teaching us um about trust. So how do you rebuild trust? And how do you build trust, I guess, in the first place? You know, when you, when you have your best friend and life is great and everything's easy, it's just easy to trust each other. But Nan Russell will be joining us. And uh, Nan is the vice president of a multi-billion dollar um, – was the ni- national vice president of a multi-billion dollar QVC and was named one of the top 100 thought leaders 
in both 2015 and 2014 by Trust Across America. And what she's here to teach us about today is the problem of how you build trust and how we always say, well, yeah, trust but verify, right? You got trust but verify. She's going to talk a little bit about that approach, the trust but verify approach. Be careful because it may not actually be doing what what you need it to do. So she will be joining us in just a few minutes. One of her uh, one of her books that she's very popular for is called Trust Inc. How to Create a Business Culture That Will Ignite Passion, Engagement, and Innovation. And she'll be talking about that with us in just a few minutes. But first, Miguel. Do you trust me, Matt? I totally do. Until you put your head down on the console and all the music started hitting. (laughs) Then then I didn't trust you. Trust but verify. That's my rule. But apparently it's a wrong rule. Uh, We'll get into that. I totally trust you. Well, maybe she can help us work on that. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll work through our trust issues. But first, let's get to the person who has all the trust in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kathy's like, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Kathy Aiken in the headlines. U.S. stocks rebounded this morning as the Dow climbed back over the 16,000 mark. Also this morning, the Chinese central bank cut interest rates by one quarter of a percentage point. Economist Max Wolf talks about the effect to everyday people. Short term, we're probably pretty near the bottom. Long term, we have a ways to go. A lot of the gain has gone to the top 10%. I think folks have gotten a little lackadaisical about looking at the bottom 80% of American households, which, while they've recovered a bunch, are still ways below where they were in 2007, 2008. Investors were hungry to buy this morning after the Dow closed nearly 600 points at the end of trading yesterday. Two Republican leaders are hoping to make Donald Trump's quest for the GOP nomination a little more difficult. Party leaders in Virginia and North Carolina are reportedly considering a push to make candidates who enter the Republican primary pledge not to run as a third-party candidate, as well as to support the eventual nominee. That was something Donald Trump would not do at the first debate. The officials say they hope this proposal will convince Trump to be more fully committed to the Republican Party. Meanwhile, speculation continues to swirl over whether or not Vice President Joe Biden will enter the presidential race. His aides say he'll make that decision by the end of September. IndyCar driver Justin Wilson died last night after he suffered a head injury during a race at Pocono Raceway on Sunday. Wilson was hit after a car ahead of him hit into the wall. The accident is now raising concerns about the safety of the sport. It is time that solutions are looked for and I think it's time that the drivers got together and and come up with a few ideas. I sincerely hope that some progress will be made on this issue. This is something that they are going to have to focus on more than they have done in the past. That was former Indy driver Eddie Cheever. Wilson leaves behind a wife and two daughters. Wildfires continue to burn in central Washington state, making this the worst fire season in the state's history. Five wildfires grew more than 26 square miles, covering nearly 257,000 acres. The fires are only 10 percent contained and threaten nearly 5,000 homes. Officials fear the fires could burn for several more months. And Matt, what a great story. A 10-year-old boy was found in the eastern Utah area after he went missing for 24 hours. Malachi Bradley said he curled up between rocks to keep himself warm after temperatures dipped to the upper 30s. He was spotted by a rescue plane and picked up by a police helicopter. Can you imagine the parents for those 24 hours? That would be terrifying. No, seriously, that is – isn't that the scariest thought ever? Ever, yeah. Losing your kid. I mean, there was a – do you remember Uh, the family that lost a boy in the Uintas several years ago? uh He was never found. I, I just can't even imagine what you would go through wondering where in the world did he go? So and it sad. never ends, does it? Never, it just, that would never end, no, no. Did you hear about this crazy story about the child, the, the parents that are suing that school 
there's a, there's parents suing a school because Wi-Fi makes their son sick. Hmm. I guess there apparently is a disorder that is called electromagnetic hypersensitivity syndrome, and it it makes these kids suffer headaches, nosebleeds, nausea every time the Wi-Fi is engaged. That wow. sounds like something from the Onion News. No. <laughs> It's, somebody there's somebody always it, has something, right? Isn't that I mean, crazy? Yeah. I mean, but so but is that not like that's like the death sentence. Yeah, you, everywhere you go. I guess you'll have to have everything like by cable. You'll have to have your Wi-Fi not you, an yeah. aluminum foil suit maybe. But like how would you even go into a workplace without getting sick? Oh, exactly. There is a town accord apparently that is the the quietest town in America. It's um Greenbank, West Virginia, which is Basically, a Wi-Fi-free community mm. where they all go of live. How many people? Is it um, I don't know. Uh, I haven't Five? read the full article here. I just got it. Um, but like, even a cell phone emits this. So if you're around somebody with a cell phone, you're going wow. to get nauseous. I'm gonna. I feel, for, I feel for that boy. But maybe that's what I'll tell my kids: is that it's going to make them sick, and they, they won't use it. it. At least in your home. At least start yeah. there. You can't use it in the it home. It won't work. It's my wife. She's all over it. <laughs> they she know you're lying. That. Anyway, so um, crazy stuff, crazy stuff. Hey, we got a great guest coming up. Nan Russell is going to be joining us. And Nan um, is uh, vice president of the multi-billion dollar QVC and was named one of the top thought leaders in both 2015 and 2014 by Trust Across America She's going to be joining us in just a few minutes, teaching us how to build trust in our relationships and in our organizations. Pretty interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. Talking trust after the break. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today, by the way, August 25th, we're celebrating Kiss and Make Up Day. You got to kiss and make up, right? Which gets to, uh, you know, the point of our next guest. Nan Russell is joining us um, on the phone. And Nan is an expert in building trust in organizations. Nan uh, says, while trust but verify at times can be essential, an essential approach to life, often it's detrimental Nan is the vice president of multi-billion dollar QVC and was named um, one of the top 100 thought leaders in both 2015 and 2014 by Trust Across America. And she's here today to um, talk to us about her book, Trust, Inc., How to Create a Business Culture That Will Ignite Passion, Engagement, and Innovation. Nan Russell, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you on the show. I mean, trust is it, – it seems like it's got to be one of the universal principles, right, of life. If I don't trust you, it impacts everything I can ever do with you. That's really true. Unfortunately, we get it mixed up. It's one of those words that we interchange with a lot of things. Yeah. So while trust is essential, uh, we kind of make it more global than it really is. Yeah, talk about that. I mean, you wrote a wonderful article um, that is called The Problem, like with that trust and verify. That's what people always say. Look, I need to trust this person, but you you, you got to verify. You got to make sure you got to tr- you can trust them. That seems almost contradictory. It is, depending on what it refers to. And I think that's where people get confused. So if, you know, if it's a life or death situation, if you're 
you know, working on purity of pharmaceutical things that are going to affect people's livelihood and life, yeah. then you're going to want to trust but verify. So that's a whole different strategy than what most of us have in our day-to-day life. We're not worried about, you know, safety and security issues that are life-threatening. And in that case, what that does is exactly what you said. You know, if I use a trust but verify approach, I'm really saying, I don't really trust you. (laughs) Prove it. Yeah, I'm going to keep following up. you got to earn it with me. And what we know now that we didn't know before is that, you know, trust, the, the kind of trust that works in relationships is relationship trust. And that is developed and created and evolves in very different ways. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, because that's what I've always wondered. Do you, do you give trust? And, and at some point you do. By, like, by me letting my kids do something, I'm showing, okay, I trust you. I've trained you. I've, I've trusted you. And, or is it earned? And, and there's always this weird debate. And really it seems like it's the glue of our, of our interpersonal relationships, isn't it? Trust is the thing that glues us together and that it almost allows us to have deeper relationships. And you know, by how the way trust goes is the way our relationship goes. Yeah, it definitely is one of those things that is going to impact whether you have what I refer to as a genuine relationship yeah. um, or, or, or not. And, you know, one of the things you brought up is key, and that's the sense of, like, you know, how do we give trust and do we give trust and, and how does that work? Now, one of the the misconceptions about trust has to do with the fact that, you know, it, it is kind of the, you know, some people see it like a screensaver. You know, I do it, I build it once and it's there. Um, and what we know is that, that trust really, in order to work in a relationship, whether it's with your kids or with your boss, um, it's, it has to be used as a verb. It's something you make. It's about actions. And it's also about accountability on the other side. So, but People think that I either trust you or I don't, Mm. like it's a light switch. Yeah. And the way uh, relationship trust works is it's it's really incremental over time, and there's accountability on the other side. So if you give your your kid a little bit of trust and you say, hey, you know, call me when you get there, Um, if they do, if they text you, if they let you know that, then you're going to give them a little bit more. If they don't, you're going to pull it in. Yeah. Um, And we do that all the time with different relationships that we have. And you see, I mean, you're an organizational leader. You you see, though, that we could actually, you know, forge trust, the verb, in, in an organization and actually kind of drive it deep throughout the organization if, if, I guess, if we're approaching it right. Well, and that's one of the very exciting things that has happened out of what is chaos and some not good things during the Great Recession. And the good thing is, that you you add the things that happen to our economy with the changes in technology and the way people get information. And what we now know is that trust doesn't have to start from the top. It can start anywhere. And that people work for people and want to work in groups of people that they trust. So anybody, regardless of position, regardless of where they are in an organization, can can start their own pocket of trust. And, you know, that's where all the great things happen. All you have to do is look around 
any good organization, and you'll see energy and fun and things that are occurring that aren't occurring other places, and you know that that's a pocket of trust. Oh, yeah. So a pocket of trust would be just maybe a team, a group that really works well together. They they do trust each other. Um, that there is accountability to each other for results and and for being trustworthy people. Yes, and they are all invested in that relationship in whatever it is that needs to get done. That that the 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 fuel for engagement. People talk about engagement being a problem at work or yeah. engagement in in lots of environments. Um, engagement is a symptom. Lack of engagement is a symptom of a problem of distrust because you can't really be engaged <laughs> um, if you don't have a trusting environment yeah. to feel that. That is so true. And if you, if I dodge, I mean, if I'm not actively engaged in doing something, then I'm going to lower trust anyway. And so, so really, that that is that that um, it, it's like it is a currency, isn't it? And it makes us more effective together, or it kind of weakens us depending on that space between. Yes, and and um, one of the things that's changed a lot dramatically in the way in which trust is used as a currency is the fact that now so much of what we need in organizations and in communities is for people to add their discretionary effort, provide their insights and ideas. Those are not things we can crowbar from people. People have to give them freely. And the only reason they're going to do that is if they feel um, kind of that genuine relationship and that trust that's there that says this is a mutually beneficial relationship. And that's that's one of the key components. Now talk about that. What what do you term a mutually – uh, or, or what do you term a mutually beneficial relationship? My needs are being met. Your needs are being met. What exactly makes it mutually beneficial? And, and make sure that I will add my discretionary efforts. There's, there's basic kinds of things, which is if, if I want the best for you, if, and that's, that's a huge if. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if I do, that's, that's clearly displayed by the behaviors that I have associated with not only the way I may interact with you, but the kind of information I decide to provide. So, so I use something called thoughtful transparency. And that means that if, if you're in a genuine relationship, you're providing the other person with the information that they need to have good integrity, to make good decisions, to create their own decisions about their life, you are realizing that they need to have that to do great work, to, to you know, show up and, and um, use their gifts in the world. And, and that orientation says it, it's never manipulative, it, it has a positive intention behind it, and there is an authenticity about the fact that um, you're kind of in it for the long term, I'm going to put long term in quotes, but um, of the relationship, meaning that it's not about one single outcome. It's about a long term, you benefit, I benefit, we can do something good together. Yeah. You, you also have used the term um, authentic trust. What, what, does that, what does that mean? Is that kind of part of this, the, what you're talking about, that it's, it's, it really is me being into you? It's me truly wanting what's best for you. Yeah, authentic trust is the kind of trust that, that um, 
works. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are lots of other kinds of trust, and, and I don't want to say or, or minimize the value of that, but authentic trust, otherwise referred to as relationship trust, is the kind of trust that, that you and I are talking about. It's the trust that comes with a verb, it comes with actions, it comes with wanting to build those kinds of genuine relationships and operate with, you know, not only kind of the, the, the best sense for both people, but we're not in it for our own, uh, there's a bigger purpose. Mm. Um, and people who, who align behind the fact that, um, you know, they want to contribute to the world, they want to make a difference, that kind of trust that builds as, as a result of that in, in an organization or, or in a group um, is very powerful. It's also the kind of trust that can be, if broken, it can be redeveloped. Um, and it's not what often we think of trust. Most people define trust in a very basic terms, and they think of it more like the kind of trust we had as children, um, where you know you, you, you sort of give absolute categorical trust to a parent or, or someone else in your life. That's not authentic trust. It realizes there's risks. And, it, you know, you have to make good judgments. You don't give the same amount of trust to everybody. You understand it has to be um, an ongoing developmental action and, hmm. and thoughtful. Beautiful. Um, I mean, really, it is. It's, it's such an interesting thing. And we throw the word out there like we all, oh, yeah, trust. I know what that means. Right. But right. It's, it's a lot deeper than that. We're speaking with Nan Russell, um, and she's teaching us about trust and, and the power of trust. Uh, she's the author of the book Trust, Inc., How to Create a Business Culture That Will Ignite Passion, Engagement, and Innovation. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. More on building this trust with others. She'll be giving us some of uh, the tools, the, the five trust-building practices. We'll talk to her about those when we come back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking with Nan Russell about trust. Um, you know, it's it's not an easy thing, is it? Uh, Nan is an award-winning author, international speaker, president of Mountain Works Communication, and uh, is also the author of the book Trust, Inc., How to Create a Business Culture that Will Ignite Passion, Engagement, and Innovation. She joins us now to uh, to walk us through... More lessons on trust. Nan, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's great, great to be here. You bet. Great to have you. Um, so if I'm a, let's say I'm a business leader and I want to, to get some more of these pockets, I want to take my pocket of maybe trusting people and grow it so that all of my departments or my divisions or whatever are starting to, to grow trust. What are some of the, the practices I could uh, use to build more trust? What are the ways that I can affect trust? Well, the, one of the first things that you need to do is you, you need to want to do that. Now, we've just made assumption that you did, yeah. but I, I put that out there because I, it, it's what we were talking about earlier. We so use this word in strange ways that 
um, people will talk about, oh, yeah, of course I trust you. Or, <laughs> and, and, and the decision about trust is, is a decision that requires learning some skills about how to develop it. So, so one of those is the, this first step that that leader needs to take, and that is that they need to give trust first. But before they do, they have to give some thought to their own perceptions. We worry a lot about people who, you know, can I trust you? And that comes up in this issue about giving trust first. Can I mm. trust you? Do the people need to earn it? And what most leaders need to do is turn that around and ask themselves before they start developing this skill of trust giving, am I worthy of someone else's trust? And we don't usually go there first. And it requires us to think about our own competence, our own self-trust, our own involvement in relationships, and some other things first. So I'm going to kind of put that yeah. over to the side and just say that's a given. Yeah. Um, so once we have that, then this element of giving trust first that we talked a little bit about before the break has to do with being able to use trust as a currency, giving it incrementally over time in different ways to different people and have accountability on the other side. And the more accountability you get, the more trust you get. So, you know, there's this continuum that says, you know, incredibly powerful teams sometimes work on this, this trust level that they've built over time, which is, hey, just tell me if you get into trouble. But if yeah. you're... If you have a new employee, you might say to that person, run it by me first. Um, those are all ways in which you start to do it. But the first step is giving it. And if you believe people must earn it first, you're going to have a little challenge there. Interesting. Yeah. So it, so there's different levels depending on a person's competency, their ability, their time with you, their history. Interesting. Yeah. So, so you have to kind of adapt that. Yes. And for the most part... Um, you know, that's a natural thing that we generally do um, as leaders, but our belief structures get in the way at times. Yeah. So we just have to keep them in check. And, it, and like you were saying, we have these we, – we have to know what our belief about trust is and how we use it as a currency. That was such a great question that you said that we need to ask ourselves about, am I worthy of someone else's trust? That's almost me – starting to take the place of others to try to figure out how I impact trust in my society or my organization. Yes, and it has some complications with it because we know based on a lot of research out there that there is this better than average effect that we all are affected by. And that means, you know, for the most part, we all think we're better drivers, <laughs> we're better right. leaders, you know, we're smarter. Than yeah, well, we know it. Come on, Nan. Yeah, of course. And so we don't realize sometimes this, this concept of self-awareness, um, we don't always see that that the way other people may perceive our actions may be something that causes them not to give us their trust. Because, you know, we can give trust, but if we don't get it in return and it's not kind of this ongoing back and forth, you're still not going to build a genuine relationship that gets great results or has a great culture. Right. Um, is it true, I mean, it must be true that if there's some, if there's trust pockets in our lives and in our organizations and in our families um, there must be some people that are more gifted at, at managing the trust than others. Um, I, I think there, there, that's true, but for the most part, there's well, there's two things. One, there's a belief structure. There are some people believe that no one is worthy of trust. So, huh. so if if 
they have that belief structure, then it's unlikely that without greater awareness and choice, um, they're going to be able to do that. But for, for the other people who, you know, want to develop trust, um, those, those elements definitely come into play. And so if I have a manager that I work with and his, his paradigm that governs his management style is trust no one. They will always right. let you down. Um, right. If that is their if that is their paradigm, then I probably ought to be realistic about this person's ability to lead a, a, an incredibly trusting pocket or organization. Yes, um, and it's going to become more crucial as things start to shift, and cultures are shifting. But one of the things that we see happening um, in the last couple of years is that the the top performers that organizations need are really starting to say, hey, I'm not going to work in an organization or for a person where I can't do great work, and I can't do great work when someone doesn't trust me. Yeah, and they'll self-select out. Interesting, which means, um, I guess, if you are a high-trust culture and you're in, in a trusting culture and you know how to manage it and make it mutually beneficial and hold people accountable to it, you could actually attract people that buy into that trust paradigm. Yes. And that is where you'll see organizations that have a lot of collaboration, teamwork, innovation, engagement, yeah. and, you know, great results. Now, that, that quite honestly, you know, the, the reverse argument is not true, and people get that confused, too. You, you can be highly pro- profitable. You can, um, be a, you know, have a company that contributes in, in certain ways, and, and it be not a trust culture. Yeah. Um, but people ad- adapt to that or they choose that and, you know, that can work too. So so we can't make the argument that this is the only way to do it, right. but it is certainly a way to do it that creates, I believe, you know, the best for everybody. Hey, as we, we need to wrap up, but tell me, what, what would you say is the one thing that everyone could take away from our discussion today and go tomorrow and immediately start implementing that would foster or nourish more trust in their relationships? Um, I think one of those things has to do with this concept that we haven't talked about, which has to do with integrity and behavioral integrity. And people get that very confused. And the key here is behavioral integrity, i.e., what you say and what you do, if it's in alignment, um, you're going to start to build trust. And so that awareness coupled with the intention for mutually beneficial relationships and giving trust first is going to be a great place to start. So simply aligning your words and your actions. I mean, this sounds like something we learn in preschool, (laughs) kindergarten. kindergarten. (laughs) And yet, but simply, let me get this straight, simply doing what we say we're going to do and keep doing what we say we're going to do, that one thing, because it ends up speaking louder than anything you could say about trust. It's huge, and it is what makes us be perceived as worthy of someone else's trust, and and we need to do that, or it's not going to work. Oh, I love that. Simple, simple, Nan. Well done. Um, uh, We so appreciate your insight, and highly suggest go check out uh, Nan's website, nanrussell.com, and uh, when you get there, you'll be able to uh, find her book on Trust, Trust, Inc., How to Create a Business Culture that Will Ignite Passion, Engagement, and Innovation. Good stuff, folks. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be visiting our buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, friends. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, everybody. You got to kiss and make up, according to Mary Blige. We're going to shoot it down to two of my good buddies, who are always kissing and making up with their fans at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Those intros get weirder and weirder by the day. <laughs> don't you love that? You don't love a little Mary J. Blige in the morning? Is today National Kiss and Makeup Day? It is. There you go. How did you know that? That's so weird. You just picked that up from our little music. Little Google action there, oh, Matt. <laughs> Darn it! You're on to us. Did you? Uh, you found our source, didn't you? Hmm. <laughs> Your random the, calendar of awesomeness. The, go- the Google. Hey, um, uh, guess what? What? Okay, here's a test for you. Dark side. Uh, this is. I'm going to give you a little hint. Dark side. Give me one of the weirdest. Top 1,000 baby names in America. You will not believe it from Star Wars. What name are wow. – it's in the top 1,000 baby names. Anakin? No, Anakin is in there. It's the 90, 957th most popular name in the U.S. among boys. Leia, is that Jar Jar. ridiculous? Darth Vader. What? Why? Lord Vader. Why would you do that to your child? Because you hate your child. Darth? Okay, okay now, I, I want to go, I feel strongly that a middle name is more, like, if you wanted to go, like, Darth on a middle <laughs> yeah. name, like, fine, whatever. Like, Jimmy, Darth, because Townsend. Because on, on a future possible boy for me, I want the middle name Optimus. Because really? it's Latin for greatest or noblest. It's also the second greatest leader of all time, Optimus, Optimus Prime. Why don't you say Maximus? Because Optimus is better. <laughs> Optimus Prime. Sam the Cube. <laughs> this is... I love Optimus. You're but Darth, Darth on a first name? Okay. Like, come on. Okay, what do you think about Voldemort? And just call him Voldy. <laughs> he who shall not be named. <laughs> or Morty. Voldy. Voldo- someone, ha- someone has the name Here, Voldemort Voldy. in the world. <laughs> Voldy. Voldy, leave your brother alone. He's you got know. like a really tiny nose and is bald. And <laughs> Quit using my name, mother. Ralph Fiennes is really angry right now, making fun of Voldemort. <laughs> you know what is so funny? Um, the neat thing about being a parent is you get the great honor of naming your child. Isn't that funny? You have no say in your name? Zero? No say. And then, but you've got to remember, this is what I'm remembering now that I'm getting older. Remember that there will be a day that you will be decrepit and old in your bed, incapable of taking care of yourself, and there, then Voldemort walks in, and he has to diaper you. <laughs> Your child oh will someday Optimus. own you. So make sure you get their name right. You do, not want to end, you do not want to say to the nurse at the rest home, this is my son, Voldemort Optimus. You don't want to do that. Darth, LeBron James Jordan. Darth Voldemort, Voldemort Optimus, yes. Darth Voldemort. That is so sad. But true. That's totally true. Anyway, um, yeah, it is makeup, uh, kiss and makeup day today. So... If you guys have any problems with anybody, today's the day you fix them. Okay. I don't need some day to tell me when to fix my problems. I just fix them. That's not what she said. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) Anyway, your wife called. It's getting personal now. (laughs) Your wife called for some private coaching. (laughs) It's all right. We've been working on it. Is, is, Jerem, still on? is Jerem mad? Is Jerem, he mad? Jerem is. I just never thought I'd hear it. That's what she said on uh, I said that's what, that, I said that's not what she said. Oh, that's not what she that's said. That's different. Okay. That's different. Yeah. yeah. Hey, are you guys still doing your show thingy? We are doing it. Yes. That <laughs> you got a lot doing. to talk about because uh. I, I, I'm reading a lot of news about 
you know, BYU past players, present players, future mm-hmm. players. What's on oh, the show? Oh, future. I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. I see yeah. what you did there. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's stay with pop culture references, okay. Matt. Okay. okay. Who is the boy wonder of BYU football to Taysom Hill's Batman? Man, the, the boy wonder. The second most important player on the BYU football offense. Um, it would have to be, well, it used to be Williams. So who is it now? There you go. There's your, there's your, that's the question of the day. I'd build a whole show around that if I was you guys. We have discussed Part doing of the show will be around just that. That's great. Yeah. So we're, we are. Are you going to answer the question though Looking on for the BYU show? football boy wonder okay, today. That's, well, I think the boy wonder, I think you guys are the boy wonders, but whatever. <laughs> the boys wonder. The boys wonder. Yes. The boys wonder what happened. Um, <laughs> tell me uh, what else is on the show today. I I just keep thinking about Darth Voldy. I know. Darth Voldemort. <laughs> Voldy. <laughs> the greatest villain of all time. <laughs> Leave your sister alone. <laughs> Stop. Oh, we're, we're gonna Take d- the helmet off. Voldy, where's your nose? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Don't pick your nose. It's, uh. No, no. It's uh, a it's a three guest day as well, man. Cool. What, who? Anybody else coming on the? All Brown, the, names? the running back, y'all. Wow, he's the number one running back now. Yeah. Uh, Paul Tidwell, inside linebackers coach. Huge, huge question marks at middle linebacker for BYU. Who's the guy? Who he he tells us who the starters and backups are at those positions. Sweet. Plus Amy Boswell, number two blocker in all of the United States last year in, in college women's volleyball, will join the show as BYU gets ready to. Trying to answer the bell after going to the national championship. It's match. Not often we have Last a six year. foot four young lady in Studio B. No, this is. It, make sure you take pictures. Okay, post Probably those on Instagram. But good idea. Well, we will have moving pictures on BYU no, but, TV. But, but you want them on Instagram and tweet them out so all the, the peeps the can see. Machine. Them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, that's a great show. <laughs> you can do that. Always, uh, always a pleasure. Man. <laughs> always fun to find out what's coming up on the show. And hey, you're welcome. Go kiss and make up with whoever it is you need to kiss and make up with. Great advice. Great advice. <laughs> Thanks, gentlemen. Have a great show. See ya. See ya later. Um, good stuff. Man, they, they always pack them deep. Pack them deep and sell them cheap. It's a great marketing tip. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Voldy. I guess I'm going to name one of my kids Voldy. Hey, did you hear about this raccoon attack? Raccoons attacked a couple and a dog in San Francisco. In San Francisco, a couple was attacked by the what they say was a pack of raccoons. <laughs> That's just funny. A pack of it's not funny because raccoons are horrible, mean animals. Here, here, little puppy. Um, the raccoons. It, it, they said if it weren't for a neighbor who came to their rescue, they believe they might have been seriously injured. Many neighbors in the area say they don't like going out after 11 p.m. Not because they worry about getting mugged, but because they worry more about a confrontation with raccoons. Patty Upsavs says she and her husband went out Monday night to let their dog get one last walk, and that's when the raccoons pounced. Scary. So I started swinging. Um, what? So I started swinging the dog around trying to get it off. Oh, you mean I guess they mean the raccoon. Oh, no, the dog The dog jumped on a raccoon, I guess. And they're trying to get their dog off the raccoon. Upsavs says the pack of raccoons attacked. Then I got... Uh, And then I got another one on one of my legs. And so at that point in the middle of the street, I look up and see, where's my husband? How come he's not helping me? And I look and he's throwing raccoons that are jumping on him. Holy cow. 
they're being attacked by a pack of raccoons. The struggle lasted a few seconds until their neighbor, Brian Wong, came to the rescue. And he ran down the hill with his golf club screaming like crazy. Oh, how lucky. Wong says he used his club to bang on the garbage cans that were left out for trash collection that night. Upsavs suffered several bite wounds and scratches. She and her husband are going through a series of anti-rabie treatments. Uh, Oh, my heavens. A wildlife expert in the area um, from Wild Care in San Rafael, she says that the people shouldn't be worried about raccoons attacking them because this situation was unusual. Yeah. Yeah, it's always unusual (laughs) until it happens to you. Then it's the scariest thing in the world. Um, So (laughs) raccoons attacking. You know what? It's all fun and games, folks. Tell you, just go out for a leisurely walk, and the next thing you know, the raccoons, they are attacking. Did you hear this man uh, about the man making $10,000 a month on the stupidest idea ever? So imagine what's the stupidest idea you've ever heard. This guy makes ten grand in profit per month. He's a Texas entrepreneur. His brainchild, this is, listen to this, he charges customers between 8 and $10 for a potato— And then he writes a custom message on it with a Pilot G210 retractable rollerball pen. With a pen that you can buy at any store, he writes on a potato, and then he mails it anonymously to the recipient that uh, the customer wanted it mailed to. That's it. That's it. Ten grand a month. A potato, a message, and a pen. That's all you need. And a little postal service. Are you kidding me? And you complain that you don't have a job? Come on. Just start mailing out potatoes with death threats, whatever you got. This guy's making 10 grand doing it. Isn't that amazing? Folks, it's just a J-O-B. Pretty crazy. From raccoons attacking to potatoes going out. Let's wrap up this show with today's hero. You know we always like to share a hero story. Because the, everyone around us, somebody has the potential to, to be the hero of the day. After seeing uh, the honesty in one man's daughter, this state trooper let dad off with a warning. Here we go. The story goes like this. After catching up with the speeding vehicle, an Indiana state trooper pulled up to meet a father and his daughter sitting in the car. Once at the window, the father admitted to speeding, apologized, and did not show any resistance to a ticket The officer noticed both the father and his special needs daughter, who was sitting in the back seat, were nervous. So he asked the father to approach the back window and speak to the daughter. The father uh, agreed, and the officer began talking to the girl. He took off his hat, placed it on her head, and told her she was being given permission to be a trooper for five minutes. He then asked the daughter what he thought should happen to the father. She looked at the officer and said he was speeding. He should have a ticket. Surprised at her honesty and pleased with the morals that her family had taught her, the officer let the father off with a warning. The father posted the story on his Facebook page later that night saying, there are some great cops out there. The station replied by saying, we are so glad Ashley is on our side. How cool is that, folks? A cop, an officer pulls you over and uh, is noticing the good in the girl in the back seat. And still is willing to make it worth her while and have a teaching moment. That's the cool thing about life. Those teaching moments are everywhere, aren't they? So to this great officer um, who hasn't been named in the story, but uh, we want to thank him for just doing his duty 
and uh, being able, honestly, to honor the good in all of us. And for the father that uh, loved his daughter enough to teach her the importance of honesty and building trust, that's been a big part of the show today. Remember, folks, we can't do the show without you. Our goal is to help you find the good in the world. It's everywhere. It's not just somewhere. It's not just in a few people. It's in every one of us. So will you please go let your light shine And as you do, you lift everyone around you. That's the show, my friends. Check us out on YouTube or on iTunes, on TuneIn. You can also look for the show on byuradio.org. Until tomorrow, my friends, uh, make sure you take care of each other, love each other, and make it a great one.